This morning we're going to be in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Let me read those for us, and then we will walk through this together. Paul opens up this passage, and he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony... Is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the faith. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. Whew. Last week, let me lay some groundwork. Last week we went five through nine. Five through nine gives us the picture of what an elder needs to look like. Paul says, look man, this is why I left you in Crete. You need to appoint an elder, you need to appoint elders, plural, in every town singular. Lays the groundwork for us. He moves through. He says they must not be arrogant. He has this whole list of things that they should not have in their life. He describes what their family life should be like. He describes what their outward community manifestation, manifestation of their life should be like. And then he comes into this passage that describes troublemakers. Right? Now you might be asking yourself, well, why would Paul get into this? Well, simply because most people that come into churches look something like the family that we're about to put up on the screen. They look something like this family. And, and they're, I mean, they're, they're attractive people. They're happy. They smile in all their photographs. And so we look and we see them. And we say, man, they are. They're good-natured folks. They're the type of people that you want to take to lunch. They are, they're good-natured folks. I'm sure they wouldn't cause any trouble. Well, then you get to know these people a little bit better, and you discover that this isn't actually what they're like. Instead, they're more like this. <laughs> and, man, they're going to tear that church apart. They, I mean, they are scary. They are scary. But there's no way to know that by looking at them, right? There's no way to know that, that they're really the way that this passage describes them until you get to know them. And Paul sets it up. He says, this is why you have elders. Because people look a certain way, but they act a very, very different way. Okay? So let's walk through this together. Let's see what he has to say. Paul gets into this passage, he says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. And he localizes it, and he says, especially those of the circumcision party. Basically, he's saying, this is why you need elders, because there are these people. There are those who are opposed to the gospel. And he describes them first off, he says, there are some that are insubordinate. Now, some of you read this passage, and you're against the idea of having multiple elders, because you don't want people involved in your life, right? Right? You think, I want to spend my money the way I want to spend my money. I want to go to eat where I want to eat. I want to live in the house I want to, I want to live in. And I don't want anybody telling me I shouldn't. Friend, I don't really care where you eat. I don't really care where you live as long as you don't ask me to come over there and you live three hours away. And I don't care what type of car you drive unless the seats are uncomfortable and you ask me to go on a very long road trip with you. Okay? 
you know, he gets into this deal and he says they are insubordinate. Now, what is he talking about? Clearly, clearly, he is not talking about being insubordinate to elders. And you say, Matt, why would you say that? Because Paul has just told him to go and appoint elders that gives us an indication they didn't have them yet. So the insubordinates that Paul is referring to is an insubordinance to the gospel. These people are being insubordinate to the gospel. They are rebelling against what they think are the constraints of the gospel. This thing that has made them free, this thing that has freed them from sin and death, they feel that it's constraining them. And so they rebel against it. Paul says the first reason you need elders is because there are many who are insubordinate to the gospel. There are many who are insubordinate to the gospel. He says that they are empty talkers and deceivers. These are people that get together and they ramble on and on about nothing in particular. Building up all this empty philosophy and then we see that they are deceivers. They are, they're calling people to believe in this empty philosophy. To engage in this discussion with them and to base their lives along something other than the gospel. They are deceivers. But that's the characteristic he uses here of these people. They are those that invite you into their home, invite you out to lunch, and would steer you in the wrong direction. Now, Paul localizes it, and he says, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, this is shorthand, as we see in the Gospels and in Acts, of those who are Jewish converts to Christianity. Apparently, there were some in this group who would not let go of their former way of life and sought instead to bring about all the traditions and the things they did into Christianity. And that, in essence, is what they had done. They had created a really, what is nothing less than a false gospel because they had sought to add other things, other ways of living, other ways of eating, other ways of engaging on top of the gospel. They were seeking to deceive people, to lead people in a completely contrary way to the revealed word of God. The gospel that Paul had entrusted to Titus, the gospel that Jesus had entrusted to the church. He says, this is why you need elders. You have people that are insubordinate, they're rebelling against the gospel, they're empty talkers, they're, they're spreading this false philosophy, and they're deceivers. They seek to win people over to their false way of understanding. And what does Paul say you should do to them? What does he say? Look at verse 11. He says, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. Now, how does this work? How does Paul argue they must be silenced? And what does this word give us a picture of? Well, it's actually a really forceful picture. This verb really paints the idea of going into somebody, and we'll take Ken because he's right here in the first row. And, and so Ken is nothing more than an insubordinate, empty-talking deceiver. Would you allow me to characterize him as thus this morning? Is that okay? They don't, they don't care for you, Ken. I really... <laughs> I expected two or three people to say no, but we'll go with it. And so I, we, the elders would go to Ken, and effectively this describes putting a muzzle on Ken so that he can no longer share these things, so that he can no longer engage in this type of behavior. He has to be silenced. Now, why? Why? Don't, don't you want free speech? Don't you want people to be engaged in the open exchange of ideas? Absolutely, I think we do. Only in as much as they accord with sound doctrine, right? This is the litmus test. We want people to be able to talk about all the different manifestations and things and, and particulars and all the things they're passionate about. But when they work in contradiction to the word of God, the word Paul gives us is that these people need to be silenced. Now look at the heart of Paul in this passage. 
Paul isn't working to just silence those people that are in opposition to him. Remember, he's silencing those people who are insubordinate to the gospel. Now look at the effects of their teaching. He says the teaching of these people that are going around and engaging these things, they are upsetting whole families. They're upsetting whole families. This really paints the picture that they go into a home, they begin to share their philosophy, they begin to share those things that that they believe in that are contrary to the gospel, and so they win the, the, the wife, they win the husband, they win some of the children, and by doing that, they're fracturing these families. They're fracturing these families. They're looking for the weak link. They're looking for the person who is more open to suggestion. And so they go in and they say, hey, look, look, I know the rest of your family doesn't believe this. This is truth. You've got to believe me on this. This is the way this works. So they win that person away. They win that person away and that person is in conflict with their spouse. They're in conflict with their parents or their children. And, and, And in so doing, they are destroying the families there in Crete. And that's why Paul looks at it and says, you know what? You see people doing these type of things, you need to move to silence them. You need to move to silence them. Because Paul cares for the integrity of the families there in Crete. He cares that the gospel reigns supreme in their lives. Now look, we get a further illumination on their teaching. The last part of verse 11, he says, they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, These aren't just folks out just teaching out of the kindness and goodness of their heart. They knock on your door and say, can I share something with y'all? I just really love you. I'd love to sit down with you. Look look here. I baked you some fresh bread. No, these are the people that come in. They worm their way into your family. They worm their way into your living room. They're sitting around your kitchen table with you. They start talking to you a little bit. And at some point in this conversation, it starts sounding a whole lot more like they're selling Amway than they're putting forth the gospel. I say, friend, I've got an amazing opportunity for you. I've got something that's going to revolutionize your faith. And they won't say something as campy as this, but it'd be something like, but for, for three easy payments of $99.99, you'll notice that's just below $100. I can tell you how to become a next level Christian. If you'll just subscribe to my style of teaching, if you'll just buy my book, if you'll just help me and endorse me and put me forward and care for me, these people are teaching. He gives us the understanding of shameful gain. They want money. They want to be taken care of. They want to be thought of highly in the community. They want people to support them. They want people to endorse them. They want people to write checks that take care of their ministry. Paul says they're doing these things. They're teaching what they ought not to teach. What should they be teaching? They should be teaching the gospel. They should be teaching Christ crucified and lives changed. Instead, they, they teach others how to follow in their path of empty talking. They teach others how to follow in their path of insubordination to the gospel. And they teach others how to follow in their path of deceiving people and leading them in opposition to the gospel. Now, what we're going to read in verse 12 is shocking. And if, if you ever want to be a missionary, you want to go on a mission trip, this probably isn't the line you want to lead with about the culture you're going to visit, okay? Paul writes, and he says, one of the Cretans, one of the people from Crete, a prophet of their own, a local boy, he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now this is a philosopher, Epimenides, who was writing about the 6th century BC, said this of his own countrymen. 
he looked at his own countrymen and he said, three things come to mind when I think of my own people. Like to lie a lot, lazy beasts. We're, we're, we're beasts and we are lazy gluttons. Now, the interesting thing is the Greek culture took this idea and in fact created a word that meant to lie and the word is to cretize. To, to verbalize that what it is to be Greek took on this understanding of to spread falsehood. This is how ingrained in their culture it was. Now, this gets pretty amazing. Paul comes out and he says, look, Titus, you need to understand that the people you're trying to reach, one of their own philosophers a few hundred years ago said this about them. Paraphrasing, they're terrible. They're terrible folks. You can't trust them. They're always dishonest. They're going to do whatever their, whatever their wills lead them to. They're going to follow their passions. They're going to follow their stomachs. And you know what? They are out and out lazy. Lazy gluttons. What a picture. These people want to be filled with sensuality, but don't want to exert any energy or effort to get it. Feed me. Give me more. But they don't want to do anything to get it. Now, I thought a lot about this week, this week, and, and this is the image that comes to mind. If you've ever watched much Star Wars, you remember Jabba the Hutt? Jabba the Hutt is, in my mind, a lazy glutton, right? You run away from Jabba, you're not getting, I mean, you're going to get a long ways. He's not going to be able to catch up with you, but he has people that help him out. And, okay, this is breaking down, but let me just, let me come back into this. Jabba the Hutt is, in my mind, a lazy glutton. He wants to ingest all these things, but evidently doesn't spend much time on a treadmill. These people are the same way. Their appetite leads them to do whatever they want to do, but they don't want to exert any energy, any effort. This is what one of their own philosophers said about them. It's not a very high and impressive picture of the people group that Titus is there to reach. Now, Paul offers his commentary of it in the first part of verse 13. He says, this testimony is true. This testimony is true. So on the one hand, you could read that, that verse and say, well, Paul's just quoting this philosopher. But then you get into verse 13 and you say, oh, Paul, you're telling Titus it's true? You're, you're saying there's validity to this. You're right, buddy. They are all liars. They are following their passions. They are trying to feed their gut and they can't be motivated to do anything to help themselves out. Paul gets to that and he says, this is true of them. Now, how does that affect Titus? Titus is out in the community. He's trying to engage people with the gospel. And in his mind, he understands the way that these people are according to their culture. He understands that their culture is coming to weigh on the way they make decisions, on the way that they're being called from the gospel, from darkness into light. He understands that. Paul writes, he says, you know this is true. This testimony is true. Now look what Paul says to do on the basis of this. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply. It doesn't say cut them out. He doesn't say don't have anything to do with them. Instead, he says rebuke them sharply. You start thinking about this. You say, well, Matt, you already told us that Paul said that if, if anybody starts spreading a false gospel, they need to be silenced. And now you're telling us that these Cretans, they need to be rebuked sharply. Man, that just doesn't sound very charitable. 
That doesn't sound very charitable. That sounds a lot like somebody being an authoritarian and, and reigning down authority on somebody's life. You know, inter- interestingly enough, Paul used the same idea of rebuke in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Flip over there if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20. He starts off in verse 17 talking about elders. He said they should be compensated. He gets into verse 19. He talks about how to handle a charge. He says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He said, look, people are going to be against these people. Church members are going to come against the elders, but don't accept a charge against them. Don't believe everything you hear. You need to test it out. You need to make sure that more than one person confirms the things that are said. In verse 20, he said, though, He says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Rebuke them in the presence of all. So what we see here in Titus is Paul's instruction is that he should go and he should rebuke those in Crete who are living lives opposed to the gospel. What we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20 is when Paul was writing to Timothy who was in Ephesus, essentially the same thing. He said, when you find people whose lives, and in that case, elders whose lives are in contradiction to the gospel, they are rebuked. They're rebuked. Now, to the one who's receiving rebuke, this sounds terrible. I don't know how you live your life, but I don't much enjoy the thought of being rebuked. I don't wake up in the morning and say, man, I really hope somebody rebukes me today. I just hope I go to Terry's and I ask for that burger and they just rebuke me right then and there. I really just, I mean, that would just, that would, that would capitalize my day. Carol B. and I don't start off Monday morning, me walking in her office and saying, oh, please, please rebuke me today. That just doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? But Paul uses this term. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. We recognize that his motivation is love. His motivation is not punitive. He doesn't seek to do damage to them, but he seeks to restore them, direct them back to the gospel. Look what he says next. He says, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And that's his heart motivation. That should be the motivation of anybody who leads out in rebuke, is to bring someone back to sound faith and understanding. See, it absolutely matters what you believe about the gospel. It absolutely matters how you interpret and how you work through this book and how it becomes a part of your life. As Paul said, when we find people engaging in false belief, he said we silence those that are leading out. And then we move and we rebuke those that are following. Not to make them feel bad and terrible that they were led astray, but for the express purpose that we want them to be sound in faith. We want them to have a healthy, we want them to have a vibrant, we want them to have a great manifestation of the gospel in their lives. We don't want them to live some tainted aberration of that. We want them to be sound in faith. Now he moves on to describe it for them in verse 14. In essence, he says, to be sound in faith is not to devote oneself to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. You see, this is what was happening. These, these deceivers, these empty talkers were going in and they were saying, look, what you really need to add to your Christianity 
is, is more Judaism. What you really need to add to Christianity is this understanding that, that you have to wear the right clothes, that you have to listen to the right music or not listen to the right music, that you have to obey and, and live life in adherence to certain things. Now, when Paul wrote to Timothy, we saw some of the things, same things happening. In Ephesus, they were being told not to eat certain things. They were being told not to get married. And what does Paul go in? He says, all those things God declares as good are good. He encounters the same thing here. In some sense, we see that they are trying to make the gospel more difficult. They're trying to make it more rigid. So they're bringing in all of these Jewish myths. They're bringing in all of these commands of people. In the sum and substance of this, Paul says these commands turn people away from the truth. Now, 15, in verse 15, he offers, in some sense, a commentary on this. But let's flip over first to Mark 7, and then we'll pick this up. It'll make a whole lot more sense. Mark 7, Jesus enters into a discussion with some Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were great rule followers, And they were great at rebuking those who did not follow rules. They catch you not following a rule, man, they would come down on you. I remember reading uh, probably one of the more extreme cases of Pharisaical law. On the Sabbath, you couldn't do any work. One, One form of work was plowing the field, right? Well, they say on the Sabbath, you can't spit because when you spit, it hits the dirt, the dirt splits open, and that looks a lot like plowing. So on the Sabbath, you can't spit because you're not allowed to plow because plowing is work and work on the Sabbath is not allowed. It was intense. It was intense. So he ends up with this discussion of some of the Pharisees, and they are picking apart his disciples. Verse 2, he says that some of them ate with hands defiled because the Pharisees had set up this list of the proper way that you need to wash your hands, so much water, so many times, all this, all that. So they go to Jesus, and they say, look, your disciples, man, they are defiled because they're not obeying the tradition of the elders. They're not obeying this tradition handed down. Jesus offers a response. In verse 6, he said, Of you did Isaiah prophesy, You hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. They developed this way of understanding God, this way of approaching God, that some of it was useful. They wanted to value the Sabbath. They wanted to set a time aside to worship God. They didn't want things to get in the way of that. So somebody had an idea, and they said, what if we didn't do this as well? They said, that's a good idea. That's a good precept. Let's bring that in. And all of a sudden, all these precepts became commandments. All of these good ideas and ways of interpreting and applying the text became commandments that they lived their lives to. They had brought all of these things in and imported them into their understanding of how to approach God. And Jesus' basic response is, you've missed it. You've missed this understanding of God. You've missed the understanding of what actually defiles a person. You see, you think it's by all this external effort, all this external energy that a person is kept from being defiled, but he said instead it is the internal of a person. It's not what they eat, it's not necessarily how they act, but it's how God has affected the inside of a person. 
that is given evidence by what comes out of a person. Now let's move into verse 15. In some ways, in a discussion of this conversation, Paul brings us to this understanding. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This is what I see when I look at this. Paul gets into this and he says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled, all things are defiled. Nothing is pure. For the person that is saved by Jesus, for the person that is saved by Jesus, all things are pure. We see this in Peter's vision. There is no food that is unclean for them to eat. We see this in Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees there in Mark 7 and in the parallel in Matthew 15. There is nothing that will make them defiled. There is nothing that will make them unclean. But he goes on, he says, to the person who is defiled, to the non-Christian. We notice that because he says, and the unbelieving. He goes on to say, nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. Effectively, the person outside of faith, outside of salvation in Jesus, there is nothing you can do to make yourself pure. There's just nothing you can do. You can be the best person that you possibly can be. In fact, you could be so amazing and so good and so great and so wonderful that we could interview people on the street at your work about you. We could interview family members about you. And if they didn't know you weren't a Christian, they would say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Sam, he must be a Christian. He does all these wonderful things. Oh, yeah, Joe, he must be a Christian. He does all these wonderful things. Oh, yeah, Kelly, she must be a Christian because her life is so amazing. Her family is so wonderful. All of these things are together. And do you know she has a perfect Republican voting record? Never once has she even thought about entertaining the idea of voting for a Democrat. It's amazing. Once she thought about an independent, but it was only for a moment. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how great their lives are. How good they've tried to be. You get the picture here that there are those that are trying to effectively save themselves. This is a commentary he offers on them. He says that their minds and their consciences are defiled. Man cannot save himself. And what we see in this picture are those who are trying to add to salvation. They're trying to take salvation and then then add works to it. And they say, look, God did a lot for me, right? But I need to add things to it to make it valid for myself. This is the way Paul paints the picture for us. He said, you were dead in your transgressions. No dead person can make themselves alive. No dead person can make themselves alive. They can't restart their own heart. But Christ comes in and he makes alive that which is dead. He makes anew that which was old. He moves from darkness into light, that which was lost and following these empty philosophies. He goes on to verse 16. He says, these people, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. 
This is what Paul goes on to say about these people. He says, we, give it, we get evidence, we, we're able to see that these people actually are lost. In being lost, they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The only good work that any of us could do has to be done in Christ. Now, what this looks like for us. There are lost people that I run into every week, and that many of you do as well, and some of you are. And you are trying to do good. And some of you are doing a, a fantastic job at it. Some of you have done such an amazing job of seeking to be good over the course of your life that you have begun to believe that God is impressed. That he will accept you on the merit of all the good and great and wonderful things you have done. You give a tremendous amount of money to charity. You love your spouse. You love your children. You love people that hate you. Maybe you even pray for them. You cannot save yourself. We read clearly in Scripture that none is righteous. Read in in Scripture that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that all have sinned. We read in Scripture that, that, that everyone is in need of salvation in Jesus. And you know what? This good, great, wonderful, and merciful God, he looks at you, friend, and he doesn't see the good person that all of your friends see. He doesn't see the amazing, upstanding member of society that everybody around you sees, but he sees a sinner who is lost, who is prideful, and who is in so deep a need of salvation. He recognizes you as being detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work, and he loves you and calls you to salvation. You see the heart of Paul, you see the heart of God in this passage. He's all about silencing those so that they won't do damage to others. He wants to restrain those who are having false teaching. He wants to rebuke sharply those who are following a false gospel so that they would be sound in faith. And we recognize that all those who are detestable, disobedient, dead in their ways and unfit for any good work are ultimately saved in Jesus God calls and he beckons all those who would seek to live good and holy lives and says, you can't do it outside of Jesus. He freely extends salvation and he beckons and says, come. Quit trying to accomplish good on your own. Quit trying to save yourself. You cannot do it. Now, all those in here that profess to be saved, We look at the lost person, we say, of course they can't save themselves. We look at our own lives and they say, but I'm saved and I'm just trying to be better. And so you find yourself out and and you're doing all of these things and, and we would never say that we're in this passage, right? We're not outwardly telling people you have to sing this way, you have to dress this way, you have to do these types of things, not do those types of things. Your, your wife has to look this way, your kids have to be homeschooled or in the Christian school, they can't be in public school. We would never say that those things have to be in someone's lives, but friend, I'm telling you, for too many of us, the way we live our lives gives an indication that that is actually what we believe. When you don't do certain of these things, you feel guilty, you feel distant, you feel remote from God. 
Some of us have suffered from our own conviction so long that we wouldn't recognize the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because that's terrifying. That's something wholly out of our control. You cannot add to salvation. The message of the gospel is that he has saved you. Live in accordance with that salvation. He has reckoned you righteous. Now be what he has called you to be. Live in the assurance of what he has made you, not what he's asked you to make yourself. And that's a tremendous reassurance. That even in those times when we fail, even in those times when we don't live up to the standard of perfection that God calls us to follow, that he gives us in Christ, that his love endures. You're not losing degrees of your salvation because your salvation, as Peter tells us, as the author of Hebrews tells us, is undefiled. It is undamaged. It is held in heaven for you and you have been saved to the uttermost and called to live in that reality. 10 through 16 gives us a beautiful picture of why we need elders. Need elders to ensure sound doctrine remains in a church. And Paul gives us the picture, we need them to lovingly call those back who buy in to some false addition of the gospel. This is how much God loves us. He gives us this beautiful picture of how to, of how to do church together and he calls us to lovingly walk through these things as a body together. Let me pray for us.